Joining us now on the phone is uh, the birthday boy himself, Daniel Finca. Welcome and happy birthday, Dan. How old are you, Dan? I am 37, and this is the best birthday present ever. <laughs> that's, that's kind of sad. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you see it that way because I was like, oh, no, we're asking him to get up and do an interview on his birthday. But that's Dan's commitment to getting good ideas out there. We brought you on, Dan, because you just did, um, I believe, uh, uh, other friend of the show, Hemet Mehta, referred to this as a Herculean effort. Um, wherein you responded to 16 of the worst Je suis Charlie memes that have shown up on the internet and then criticisms, uh, victim-blaming in some forms, for uh, the recent attacks there. And it is a masterful article. I was reading through it last night and going, I I can't say this stuff better than Dan. Why don't we try (laughs) to get Dan on the show? And then very last minute, we asked and you agreed. So thank you for that. Let's start off with what we keep on hearing. Freedom of speech is all good, but we really shouldn't use it to condemn religion or insult somebody's faith. There's several issues there. The the very first thing is that the very nature of religious power is its air of untouchability and reverence. That's where it gets its social effect on people, is that you're not allowed to treat the reverent irreverently. That very dynamic means that religion of all things socially and psychologically to be challenged requires the right of conscience to be irreverent about it. So I'm not for you know, being cavalierly insulting in an interpersonal context, right? Mm-hmm. You shouldn't go in to people's homes and say, what's this stupid thing, you know, <laughs> looking at their religious, you know, paraphernalia. When you're a visitor in a, in a, in a house of worship, you should be respectful as a person. Mm-hmm. But if in the whole discourse, in the whole culture, no one ever has that room to have other spheres and zones and contexts in which it is okay to express your own irreverence, then the irreligious will have to treat the religious things as holy, because holy means set apart, right? It means revered and uncriticizable. It de facto puts this onus on the non-believer to treat religious objects religiously, and we, we can't allow that. And the other thing is that the media can't do that in the sense that if it doesn't want to go out and offend everyone, New York Times doesn't need to write editorials that go out of their way to offend Islam. But... If you have images that are news stories, Mm -hmm. and the only thing offensive about them, if they're straightforward pictures of Muhammad, is the religious injunction, well, then that's like saying that the New York Times has to not spell out the word God anymore, because Jews aren't allowed to spell that out. It's the New York Times taking a very particular kind of religious offense as a reason to rearrange its whole way of doing things, This would mean, like, what, no pork advertisements, you know, no spelling out the word God, no doing anything that anyone could say within their religion would be something they couldn't do. I'm not saying New York Times has to endorse the images, but they run the God Hates Fag signs, pictures of that. Exactly. Why can't they run pictures of Muhammad and let other people decide whether or not that's offensive? What's interesting to me, too, is news outlets will run pictures of the massacre, will show video of, of the shootout that took place mm-hmm. afterwards, but they won't show cartoons yeah. that led to it. Yeah. 
One of yeah. those is a bit more disturbing than the other. Yeah. 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 As you pointed out, this can get quite ridiculous. You talked about on your blog the book The Cartoons That Shocked the World, which was a scholarly book mm-hmm. that was about the whole incident with the original uh, Danish cartoonists. The publisher refused to publish the cartoons that the book was about. You you couldn't even go in, back into the reference section and see them. That that suggests that what's going on here is a little bit more than just trying to be respectful to Muslims' feelings. Absolutely. It almost suggests cowardice. And that's exactly what the issue was. You know, Viacom wasn't uh, unwilling to air Muhammad as one of the super friends on South Park Mm -hmm. because of an innate interest in, you know, Islamic feelings about the depiction (laughs) of the prophet. And what South Park wound up doing when they wound up doing episodes defiant of free speech restrictions, and they showed Jesus and George W. Bush in, you know, uh, degrading ways, and then they just showed, they just wanted to just show Muhammad, that's it. (laughs) Nothing degrading, nothing offensive beyond the prohibition. You wind up with Viacom refusing to air the image, and that was explicitly under terrorist threat. The, The documentary filmmaker, Theo Van Gogh, had been killed in the streets in 2005, and in 2006, when there were rumblings about these cartoons, the media was terrified for their assets. They were terrified for their employees. Out of fear, they created this norm against depicting Muhammad, not just Muhammad in a degrading sexual position, but but depicting him at all. The change was fear. The New York Times is claiming that it was a matter of not wanting to offend the Muslim family in Brooklyn. But this is the same New York Times that for 10 years was describing torture as an enhanced interrogation technique. Mm-hmm. You know, because, the, you know, Muslims being tortured, that doesn't offend. You know, it doesn't offend that they won't call torture torture when it's done to Muslims. But they'll call the same techniques torture if it's done by Muslims. That's not offensive to the New York Times. <laughs> What's offensive when terrorists are threatening the New York Times over That's when the New York Times suddenly has a sense of decorum. And this means that if we all obey this, if we all say, well, we can't let people get killed, then the terrorists have created a new norm in our society. Mm -hmm. Like the whole let the terrorists win thing, you know, it's usually a lie and a bully cliche of the right, but it's really true here. If If our norms get rewritten to accommodate this fear then, yeah, really, literally, you've you've acquiesced to terrorist demands. And for free press to do that is offensive. There's an example of this spreading where the AP now just pulled images of the Piss Christ, which is, um, you know, controversial work of art, a crucifix in a jar of urine. And, you know, that work of art, the artist says what it's about, is to depict Jesus in the earthly elements, right? And that's what the Incarnation's about. The incarnation is about God can be down here in the muck with humanity, and right. Je- Jesus, Jesus could be crucified. God could be murdered, right? Yep. I mean, the imagery of, of a God being murdered could be offensive to the right religious adherent, but to Christians, suddenly this way of representing the incarnation, because it's not sanctioned by central authority, is not religious. So it's even a religious conscience. It's a religious conscience of the maker of this Christ to be able to express his views on Jesus, or a Muslim to express their uh, rejection of the idolatry of of Muhammad. Because the the idea behind not showing Muhammad is supposed to be a rejection of graven images. It's supposed to be a rejection of creating images that are worshipped. And so a satirical rendering 
is the opposite of yeah. venerating and worshiping Muhammad. You know, I was thinking about that quite a bit, that if the whole purpose of the prohibition on images of Muhammad is to avoid idolatry, you know, let's not make an idol out of a person. Is it not idolatry, in a, in a sense, to elevate that image as it's so important we would kill that over it? Kill. Yeah. it? It sure seems like idolatry to me. But let's say, I mean, a lot of people recognize we do need to allow freedom of speech, and many people recognize that even blasphemy should be covered under that. But they will say, what we're doing is we're valorizing these cartoonists. We're, we're kind of making them out to be heroes and martyrs, and they don't deserve to be called heroes. What do you think about that objection? Because it's, it's one thing to fight for our right to blaspheme. It's quite another to, to depict it as a noble thing or a good that we must have in our society. Yeah, and what I would say to that is two things. Number one, they deliberately ran the images on principle after other media outlets weren't in 2006. They deliberately kept showing images when they were being threatened with violence. They knew their lives were at risk. There was actually a firebombing on their offices in 2011. These were people who every time they did it, and now they're doing it again with the new cover, they knew that they were putting themselves in the line of a direct terrorist threat. And when the rest of the media had ducked, because they were afraid, these people kept their heads up and became a target. And... That's, I like that metaphor, by the yeah. way, Dan. This isn't like a random person expresses their views online, not sensing any danger at all, mm. and happens to get killed for it. I mean, these were people who, who deliberately baited, not Muslims, they baited terrorists. Yes, they knew right. they were on a hit list. Mm -hmm. And they still behaved in that way because the right to expression was important. And Even it, if you think that they crossed the line into racism, which I don't think they do. But if you thought that, they still knew they were putting their lives on the line. I, I don't see how you, how you can like try and undercut their valorism in that respect. There's a, a great quote that came out from the, the editor, who is also one of the cartoonists of the paper, who said, obviously before the fact, it was after the, the 2011 firebombing of their office, he said, I don't have kids, no wife, no car, no credit. Maybe it's a little pompous to say, but I'd rather die standing than live on my knees. He knew oh. he was a target. He knew there was no other way for them to get to him except to get to him. And he knew that was there, and he still did it. Not to piss people off, but because this was important. And he was, like you said, he's targeting terrorists. He's not targeting Islam. He was targeting the people who commit violence in the name of Islam. Right, and, you know, in fact, the first one of the images was Muhammad, after the terrorists, you know, threatened them and attacked them, they have an image of Muhammad saying, it's hard to be followed by jerks. Now, that, <laughs> that image is actually, though, that's an image which dic disclaims Muhammad from the extremists. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, if it wasn't the depiction of Muhammad issue, that would be like Christians having Jesus must be ashamed of us, right? Right. You know, how we're behaving if, if, if a Christian did something terrible. So the content of it was uh, not targeting Muslims as Muslims. It was targeting Muhammad as a clerical figure. And one of the reasons I bring it up at this point is because when we ask if they were heroes, a lot of the left-wing critique is saying, you know, the secularist in France is privileged, and the, mar mm -hmm. and the Muslims in France are marginalized. And, and that that's is true. true, and there yeah. is some, uh, there's some genuine oppression. 
there's some things that maybe we as harder core secularists might be more sympathetic to that's being called oppression. But there's definitely bigotry and a, you come from this region, we don't trust you because you're foreign, and, and your foreign religion gets a lot of blame. I get that. But on the other scale of it, there's three major considerations. One is that Muhammad himself is not marginalized. He has power over billions of people. And an outlet which presents a anti-clerical kind of approach to Muhammad can support those stifled, more liberal Muslims who are more secularized and, and feel trapped in their community, and, or, or ex-Muslims. You know, to be able to see Muhammad be skewered helps them against the more reactionary forces within their own community. Mm. And we have to realize that worldwide, atheism is a marginalized position. It doesn't matter if France is an enclave of extreme secularism. In the global picture we're looking at, they're not. It's a marginalized position, and these guys were literally targets of a global discourse. When you look at it that way, there's a huge erasing of the issue of the marginalization of apostates and atheists. There's so much discussion that, well, there's a right to be offensive. But there's not a lot of discussion about why atheism and anti-clericalism is assumed to be by default an unpleasant and offensive thing, whereas the Quran and the Bible are, are assumed to be inherently good. All the evils in those books aren't held against those faiths in the common public discourse. But anything that's offensive to believers, despite all the offensive things those books say about women and gays and atheists, those offensive things don't matter. But the anti-clerical pushback is inherently offensive, but we'll defend it anyway. We have to kind of challenge that whole privileged mindset. And the third part of that is there's a lot of saying, well, you can't support this stuff because on the global scale, Muslims are under Western foot. Mm. And I can understand that. But in the global discourse, there's also pushes for blasphemy laws at the UN. And this setting our moral norms to where we're self-censoring gives validation to codified suppression of blasphemy. On the global level, when people say, well, Charlie Hebdo aren't really victims because, look, they're part of the West and the West has a war machine against the Muslims. It's conflating the cartoonists with the war machine. Right. <laughs> because the West is this monolithic thing. And it's not recognizing, it, it, it's just as bad to me as conflating the average Muslim with a terrorist to say that these cartoonists deserve it because the West has a war machine. As though these cartoonists weren't anti-militaristic. As though these cartoonists weren't basically people of the left who defended Muslims as Muslims, as immigrants and only we're going after the clericalism. And what they're doing is, by creating a narrative in which the only way to look at Muslim treatment in the West is never in terms of religious criticism as a valid category, but everything is merely a function of economics and, and global power, then that means that, that, that these repressive regimes can do things like say, oh, any attempt to put democracy in here is an attempt to oppress us. Any attempt to demand religious rights uh, for minority religions or atheists or ex-Muslims is or blasphemers, oh, that's all Western imposition, part of the war machine. We have to be able to separate criticism of religious imposition from Western imperialism. They're both huge issues, and seeing every criticism of religion as a function of Western imperialism undermines the ability to stand up for apostate rights, stand up for uh, free thought and democracy in 
the Arab world. So there is a, a critique that's related to that, which focuses on the amount of time in the media that we spend covering you know, even this Charlie Hebdo case versus other atrocities at a much larger scale. We had, for example, the massacre in Nigeria mm-hmm. by Boko Haram. You know, I hear it because I listen to NPR and the right, BBC. Right. So I'm like, what do you mean people aren't covering yeah. it? But apparently on the, uh, on the TV news landscape, you don't hear much about this stuff. That could have been thousands of people who were killed. What do you think about, uh, you know, the, the criticism just that we're focusing too much on these cartoons, not the global problem of terrorism? Well, you know, we could also say we're focusing too much on these cartoons and not the victim of the Saudi government getting, you know, lashed in the public square yeah. for having the temerity to write a liberal atheist blog. The reason certain stories are central in our consciousness is because they raise these dilemmas. They raise arguments for us. And there are atrocities every day. Uh, The Western media reports on ISIS, reported on Boko Haram. I mean, Boko Haram wouldn't have been on Charlie Hebdo's cover if it was being ignored, right, in in a controversial picture. And there's atrocities every day. There's not much for us to do except oh, wow, how horrible, you know, this is heinous and horrific. And we're not going to write articles arguing about whether or not it's horrific and heinous. We'll just acknowledge it's horrific and heinous and do what, right? You know, like this, whereas whereas the reason we're arguing, the reason there's so much about this is because it's just a story that has fault lines. Bigger principles that are actually in, in doubt are in play, whereas no one in the West doubts that what's been done in Nigeria is absolutely heinous and horrific. Mm -hmm. I I also think that one of the reasons why this particular story is getting so much play in the media is because it's about the media, and it gives the the rest of the media a chance to really pat themselves on the back. I mean, how many newspapers and TV stations were running with the Je suis Charlie and the very same organizations that were too afraid to run the comics are saying, oh, yeah, freedom of speech is so important. And they, these guys stood up for freedom of speech, said the cowards who wouldn't stand up for freedom of speech. But it's like how writers write about writers. You have the media talking about media. I feel like that's why it's a little bit of a self-obsession for them. Yeah, that could be part of it, too. I'm not sure. So in the end, I think you've, you've addressed these claims wonderfully on your blog. I wanted to end on a, on a passage from your blog that I thought was particularly compelling and where you address just kind of the subtle victim blaming that we're hearing all around. I mean, even from the Pope, even, we even have Pope Francis saying free speech is, is a right, but if you, uh, if you insult somebody, you're going to get a punch. I was I was so starting to like Pope Francis too. I like the fact that he talked about punching someone. I just didn't like the reason why. You know, he did used to uh, be a bouncer. But, so. <laughs> and I love it for one name after Francis of Assisi, who's done this. I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And uh, you point out that a lot of a lot of the those statements like that are you know subtle forms of victim blaming. I, I I loved how you talked about the distinction between between what appears to be two identical phrases. The murder was wrong, but the speech was offensive versus the speech was offensive, but murder is wrong. Those may seem like identical statements, but you don't think so. Yeah, because it goes, you know, really what happens is after the but, 
I mean, I don't like when people say after the but you negate everything that's said before it. Because I think it can be sincere to a degree. But I think after the but you find what someone's real agitation is, what they think the real problem is. And they can also create false equivalences. You know, because when you say, like there was one that said, you know, this kind of intolerance that would kill cartoonists is unacceptable, but it's also unacceptable, the intolerance displayed by the cartoonists. Well, if you don't distinguish what kind of unacceptable is what Charlie Hebdo did equivalent to capital murder, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, so that false equivalence putting them in the same sentence is a problem. And the other thing I think what you're getting at is you can, you can acknowledge that you really found them offensive. And you can make that clear. Look, I'm not supporting these cartoons, but nobody should be murdered. That sends a different message than nobody should be murdered, but mm-hmm. look how offensive it was, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. look how they were goading these people. Just think about the, the paradigm case. It's less controversial. She was wearing a provocative dress, but that is no excuse to rape anyone. Mm-hmm. There is no excuse to rape anyone, but she was wearing a provocative dress. <laughs> yeah. you, you, if you can't hear the difference about, about how the victim blaming happens by which one comes after. And, and the other final thing on that is that it's possible to say that you support a cause even if it was used terrorism to support it. Maybe you believe the Palestinian cause is just and you denounce Palestinian terrorism, but you, th- but you want to say something like, you know, I denounce uh, the terrorism here, but we also must remember that Israel did this or this, also violent. You know, in that sort of case, okay, you're showing two violences. You might be saying you're more worried about Israel's behaviors than Palestine's, but you're at least comparing two violences. Mm-hmm. To be comparing murder to mere blasphemy by a cartoonist mm-hmm. is heinous. And yeah. the only way they're able to do that is by making these cartoonists culpable for everything the Western war machine does, as though they're the same people, and as though their cartoons are equivalent to imperialism, and they're not. I actually saw that commentary in cartoon form that I really appreciated. It was a drawing of an AK-47 with bullets coming out, and it was shooting a pencil. On the cartoon, it said, but he drew first. Right. Just illustrating Mm -hmm. the absurdity of, of drawing an equivalence between these two evils. Dan Finca, as always, I really appreciate what you have to say, and I'm thrilled that you were able to join us on the show. Tell us more about Camels with Hammers, your blog, and some of the other projects you're doing so our listeners can check you out if they haven't already. Thanks. Camels with Hammers, it's a blog where I talk about philosophy. Uh, I'm a moral philosophy guy, and I love talking about atheism, and so those are things I emphasize, and I develop uh, you know, my own. I'm a professional philosopher. I got my PhD from Fordham, and I, um, I developed my own sort of novel twist on a meta-ethical and normative ethical theory called empowerment ethics. And um, I teach online um, interactive personal classes, not like, you know, um, canned lectures, not, you know, do the reading and, re- you know, and fill out a, uh, an assignment sheet and send it to the professor. I recreate the you know, the small group, one or two, three students at a time, sometimes five, together with the professor, led by the students' interests. And I teach philosophy like that. Awesome. And people can uh, find out about that by going to com, And uh, my last name is F-I-N-C-K-E. So com. 
Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully, uh, if, if you're up for it, uh, we'd love to have you back on again to talk about your ethics sometime. I've been dying to come on the show anytime. <laughs>